us to Philippians chapter 2 as we uh, continue this series we're calling uh, Joy for the World, not just Joy to the World, but uh, the joy that God intends for us uh, through the gospel. It's open and available to anyone and everyone as much as you want, as much as we want. I know that can be uh, tricky to access sometimes, but sometimes we just need these reminders uh, a holy God who loves us and cares for us. Hey, uh, as you're turning to Philippians 2, I want to remind you of another thing that's happening this Saturday that, um, you know, sadly is in conflict with our missions conference, but uh, uh, our, our brothers and sisters at Holy Cross are hosting their annual fall festival. This one's a little different because it's also a farewell party for the Gilmartins. Uh, if you haven't heard yet, uh, Rick has taken a call to be the senior pastor at University Presbyterian in Orlando. Uh, so he and the rest of his family are moving to Florida. So we want to pray for the Gilmartins as they relocate. Please pray for uh, Holy Cross, our sister church in Stanton, uh, as they're you know, in an obvious transition. Uh, but in, and if you know the Gilmartins and wish to you know, go and, and, and say farewell, we will not begrudge you. We'll, we'll miss you at the missions conference, but we understand this is it's kind of a unique circumstance, and uh, we're thankful to Rick. If you don't know, uh, if you don't know part of Tabernacle's history, he was on staff here uh, and was an associate pastor here and then uh, helped launch uh, what is now Holy Cross in Stanton. He's been there since 2009. We wish them the best. All right, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to Philippians 2. So Paul is just reflecting on his plans. Uh, he still is believing that God's going to deliver him from his imprisonment and that he'll be able uh, to be free and continue to minister to the Philippians. And he's talking about sending Timothy uh, to Philippi now. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to pick up in verse 19 and read through verse 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gospel that, that cheers us, this good news you love us, that you, you are interested in us, Lord, that you take an interest in our lives. More than that, that you have given yourself for our lives. Thank you for being our, our righteousness. Thank you for being our justification. Thank you for our resurrection through Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> We're going to talk about how Paul is, uh, is, is cheered by news of the Philippians, and he's cheered at the prospect of, of serving them, and, and that there's uh, cheer that we have with one another uh, as we think about what it means to, to do Christianity and fellowship with one another. Um, so Paul's cheer, as you see in verse 19, is, uh, is sort of in the future. He, he, he's hoping, he's trusting that once Timothy goes from what we believe is Rome, where Paul is imprisoned, to Philippi, and then, and then spends some time in Philippi, gets an update on how the saints uh, in Philippi are doing, and then returns to Rome, that upon Timothy's return, Paul 
anticipates that he will be cheered uh, by news of the Philippians. So, you know, as we think about this theme of joy and how the gospel gives us joy, there's joy that we have in being a gospel community, and we get joy through our communion and relationship with one another as, as we cheer one another with what God is doing in our lives. Now, this situation <laughs> that Paul's referring to, I, I know our bias is just to think that, yeah, he's going to get news, everything's great with the Philippians, and that's going to make Paul happy. But like, remember, though, this was a long time ago, and Paul is in prison in Rome, which is a long way away from Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony, and it is miles and miles, hundreds of miles away uh, from Rome. And, and one of the commentators says, in the best conditions, such a trip would be made by foot in about six weeks. And in less favorable circumstances, it could take three months. So just do the math with me and imagine Paul sends Timothy, like the day after he writes this, right? And Timothy and Epaphroditus are maybe taking this letter back to, to Philippi. And, and at best, it takes six weeks, maybe as long as three months, who knows? And then they're going to spend a little bit of time, Timothy's going to spend at least some time in Philippi, you know, hearing how things are going, and then return to Rome in another six weeks to three months. Like, it could be six months or more before Paul is going to get this news that he anticipates will, will cheer him. Paul's facing a long wait before he's going to get news. Like, do, do you remember the days when you used to have to wait to get news about how people were doing? Do you remember the days before texting? Ah, uh, those were the days. Uh, do you remember, some of, you are, some of you are old enough to remember the days before email. You're that old. You're, you're, you're that old. When uh, I remember, like, when Kathy and I spent the summer of our junior year at JMU, I got my, my JMU name tag, gold, purple. Uh, our JMU uh, summer after junior year, uh, we spent apart. I went back to Virginia Beach and was working a couple of jobs, and she, through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, was with two other students in Georgetown, Guyana, uh, with a church planting family, a pastor and uh, his wife and their kids and their team who were planting a church. And so uh, Kathy was having a summer of missions and I was having a summer of work, right? Um, and, and we're, there's no phone calls, like that's just not going to happen. Long distance is too expensive, whatever. So we're writing letters to one another. And can you imagine how long that must have taken? Like some of you have never even heard of Guyana, South America. Like it took six weeks to get a letter back from Guyana, South America. So let's assume Kathy on day one arrives in Georgetown, and she writes me a letter. Oh, Essen, I love you so much, and I miss you so much. And it takes, and I'm not going to get that letter for another six weeks before I open that. And so imagine, like, how much it would cheer me to wait for that letter to come. And by the middle of July, like, I finally get that envelope in the mail from Guyana, South America, you know, par avion, uh, and, and you got the airmail thing going. And I open that letter up, and, and, and I'm hearing about, you know, how things are going with, with just being in that new culture and what she's eating and the family that she's with and the other two, you know, uh, students who she was serving with. And 
just kind of how, how that is making an impression on her and, and really what the Lord was doing that summer to, to, to solidify in her heart a call to full-time ministry, to missions, really. And I'm reading that letter going, this is awesome. And that just solidified, you know, my sense that I want to be with this woman, you know, for the rest of my life. So I was working two jobs that summer, saving up for a ring. And I I sent her this letter going, hey, this is awesome to hear your, you know, sense of call to full-time ministry. And I was writing back to her the same thing. Like, I'm feeling like, yeah, after... After senior year, you know, we booked out a year, and then, I, I don't know, maybe seminary, and then full-time ministry some way, in some, some form, whatever, who knows? And so I write that letter, and when's she going to get that letter? Like six more weeks have to go. Well, apparently she didn't get the letter, my, my letter, because she gets back from Guyana, South America, and says, Essen, I, I love you, you're dear to me, but this is just not going to work. I feel called to full-time ministry. I feel called in the mission field. I'm going, did you, didn't, did you not get my letter? So do I. I feel like, like, I don't know if it's mission field or whatever, but certainly seminary, certainly full-time ministry. And, oh. And then two months later, we're engaged. All right, so it was a happy ending. <laughs> um, you know, the, the affection in those letters that we're, we're sending back and forth to each other because we have no other kind of communication, you know, it was just, it was precious. It made me happy to get a letter from her. Do you, do you, can you remember when you used to get letters from people and it just made you happy to open them? So Paul's sharing some of that sense here in, uh, in Philippians. Back in chapter one, uh, he's, he's pouring out his heart to the Philippians. And you can bet it was going to cheer them to get news of how Paul is doing, their their beloved pastor, the one who planted their church, and so on. And he says in chapter 1, verse 7, that it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. If you were all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, he's not hiding behind some veil of, you know, an imposter form of masculinity, you know, keeping his cards close to his chest, you know. Real men don't really share what they feel. No, he's just, he's just letting it all out there. I love you people. But you know what? They're not going to know about that love for another six weeks to three months. Because that's how long it's going to take for Timothy to, and Paphroditus to deliver this letter. So, look, that longing to be cheered by news of you, that's real. That's, that's important. And, and, you know, there's a parallel here. Uh, Paul is showing us the, the heart of God for his people, that, that God similarly is cheered by news of us. He's, he, God, like Paul, is concerned for our welfare. I should put it the opposite way. Paul, like God is concerned for our welfare. Paul, like God, is cheered by, by news of us, right? But, but if you think about the quickest form of communication, what is it? It's not texting. It really is communication, direct conversation between you know, two people. And, and they're, they're revealing their, their thoughts and their feelings and, you know, uh, and their heart to, to one another. And we can do that. We can have that, com- that immediate communication with God anytime, and that's what we call prayer, of course. But it's not as if 
when we pray and, and, and we're sharing things with God, it's not as if God is ignorant of what's happening in our lives. That's where this parallel between you know, Paul and the Philippians and us and God breaks down because, yeah, the Philippians are ignorant of how things are going with Paul. Paul's ignorant of how things are going with the Philippians. He's going to be cheered to have news of them. He wants to know what's going on. That's not why God is cheered when he gets news about us. He knows everything about us. He knows the hairs on our heads. How many of you know how many hairs you have on your head? You don't. I don't. Uh, but God does. He, he knows everything in our lives already. We're not sharing new information with him. So what, what's the dynamic there? What is cheering the heart of God when we share what's going on in our lives with him? Well, you know, Paul may be cheered because he's ignorant and needs information, but God is cheered because we are the ignorant ones and don't really understand what's happening in our head or our heart until we take the time to pause in his presence and actually think about what's going on in my life, right? Like we run so hard and, and so fast through our days that we have no idea how events are impacting us. And we get irritable and tense and we don't know why. And we get impatient and exhausted and we don't know why. We get angry and we're frustrated and we don't know why. But when we come before God and ask him to, to search our hearts and our minds and to know us, he smiles. He is cheered because he knows how good that is for us. And that brings him glory when we come to him to reveal those things to us. That's why the psalmist prays, Psalm 139, right? Search me and know me and try my heart. Know me and my anxious thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal actually what's going on in us. Because otherwise we're ignorant. And we don't know what's impacting us. And we don't know why we're you know, feeling and responding in certain ways until we stop and ask God to search us and know us. So uh, John Piper puts it this way in his book, The Pleasures of God. Really, really fantastic book about what makes God happy. We have a happy God there's things that delight him. Prayer is one of those things. Prayer is God's delight because prayer shows the reaches of our poverty and the riches of his grace. Prayer is that wonderful transaction where the wealth of God's glory is magnified and the wants of our soul are satisfied. So when we, think, when we say that Paul is cheered by news of the Philippians. He's, he's showing us God's heart that is cheered by news of the tabernacleans, um, whatever we are. He loves hearing from us. Not because he's ignorant, but because we are. And that's how he ministers his grace to us. So, so there's that dynamic of joy and cheer here, Paul and the Philippians in relationship and community with one another. Uh, there's another way that that's demonstrated here in verses 20 and 20 and, and following, um, where you've got Paul who's, who's 
has joy at the prospect of, of serving the Philippians. Uh, he writes that about Timothy, I have no one like him who genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. All right, look, you know, there's no, you know, let's, let's dig out our lexicon and see how this word really means joy or cheer or whatever. You're not going to find that. But, but read between the lines, and there's joy here. You can hear Paul proudly kind of, you know, rejoicing over Timothy because of how wonderful Timothy is. There's a joy, you know, as Paul's describing like a proud dad boasting about his son, Timothy. Like, do you see the way he serves with me in the gospel? And I'm so proud of the way that he genuinely cares for the interests of others. Um, Paul's joy, cheer, you know, in, in Timothy isn't just about his own sort of fatherly affection uh, for Timothy, but there's something else going on too. He's, he's happy because Timothy is, is embracing what was a traditional you know, way to look at a father and a son's relationship where the son would, would really take on the father's trade, take on the father's skills and business and so on. So we still have this today, right? You drive by the moving truck and it's, you know, well, to use Paul and Timothy as an example, Paul and Son Moving Company, or, you know, Paul and Timothy Plumbers, or, you know, where, where the son takes on the trade and the skill set of the father. And Timothy's really doing that when it comes to Paul. Timothy has taken on Paul's ministry, mission, skill set, heart, passion. And so that includes Epaphroditus, as we're going to see next week. And they're all working together, serving together. And, and caring for the interests of the Philippians and everybody that they met. Like the gospel itself, gospel ministry is a group project. It's done together, and as we see Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus demonstrating this commitment to serve and to look out for the interests of others in, in Christ, right? In, 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 in the name of Jesus and through his gospel. So, you know, Timothy reminds Paul of what Paul had already spoken of, that we've, we keep coming back to these earlier verses in chapter 2 of Philippians because they're so significant. They're this beautiful poem, uh, really most scholars believe might have been uh, one of the earliest, if not the earliest Christological hymn that the church would have sung, and, and it's these verses in early, earlier in chapter 2 of Philippians where Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul's saying, hey, Timothy's like that, right? Everybody else is looking out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is looking out for your interests. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And isn't that what Paul you know, says in verse 22, that as a son with a father, Timothy has served with me in the gospel. The literal word is slave. Jesus took on the form of a slave. Paul and Timothy are slaving together for the sake of the gospel. And that Jesus was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so what do Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus then go do in light of how Jesus looked out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. And Paul's saying, have that mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, it's obviously in Timothy. And in this entire group, as they're looking out for the interests of Philippians, as they're serving and slaving on behalf of the gospel, because they want everybody to know the one who their lives mirror, the one who has changed them, one who is conforming them to his kingdom. They want everyone to know that every knee will bow on, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They want everyone to know that this one who became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, did so as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, which is, you know, theologians speak for Jesus really did take away our guilt. He really did exchange himself for us. He took our place as a sacrificial substitute to take away any penalty, any reprisal, all, all, all the, the, that was due to us for the ways that we have sinned and fallen short against one another, against God. Jesus erased all of that by absorbing it into himself. It's no longer against us. And instead, God is for us through Jesus. And all of the good that Jesus did, all of the good that he accomplished, how he looked out for the interest of everyone, even those that society had rejected and that Jesus embraced, that kind of record as a human being, that kind of perfection, that kind of ideal for who God made us to be, that gets applied to us. That's how God looks at us. That's how God looks at anyone who says yes to Jesus, who bows their knee, confesses with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, not me. He's the center of the universe, not me. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and others are all going around all the, the known world, the Roman Empire at that time, in this group ministry project looking out for the interests of others by pointing them to the one who cares about their soul, and who gave himself and who loves them so that they can be forgiven. That's what we do, right? And this is really the picture of what is happening in heaven, this group project on behalf of of our salvation on behalf of the interests of, of, of sinners like us, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're again just showing us the dynamics of heaven. This is this relationship of, of a father with a son. You know, Paul and Timothy, the joy that Paul has as Timothy comes alongside him in ministry is showing us the joy of heaven, the father and the son ministering together. You get a picture of that throughout the Bible, but there's a really great place in Proverbs chapter 8. We see more of this cheer and this joy that, that, that is to be the fruit of the gospel. And Proverbs 8 gives us wisdom. You know, the Proverbs are all about wisdom. Wisdom gets personified and has a voice and is speaking and kind of talking about creation, like the beginning. And Jesus, you know, was before all time and he was never created. So he was in the beginning. He's eternal. And 
And, and listen to wisdom as an expression of Jesus, as this illustration of Jesus and his Father working side by side at creation. Wisdom says, when, when God established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Jesus told the Pharisees who were pushing against him on the attack, trying to trap him, before Abraham was, I am. I'm eternal. I am. I'm divine. And then he would go on and say things like in John chapter 5, my father is always working and I am working. Like he got that picture, right, of, of creation and like this master craftsman and the father and the son delighting together in the creation of all things. And then, then you have the econ what the theologians call the economy of the trinity. But the Father plans our redemption, you know, maps it out on a blueprint. And the Son takes the blueprint and says, I got this. And he accomplishes our redemption. And he makes it done. And it's finished at the cross and at the empty tomb. And then the Spirit comes along and says, I'm going to blow on, on these dead bodies. And I'm going to breathe life into them. And I'm going to apply this redemption so that the dead would become alive and they would be raised to new life in Christ. And that's the economy of the Trinity as they work together on this group project called salvation, looking out for the interests of sinners, seeking our good, serving, slaving, dying in order to bring us blessing. This is how the gospel works. Ministry is a group project that's always been a group project. It's always been about serving the interests of others. This is why we don't do solo Christianity. That's why solo Christianity is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. You don't do solo Christianity on the, the vertical axis because we're in relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you don't do solo Christianity on the horizontal axis because God gives us brothers and sisters. This is probably a good time as any just to say, what's your group project? Where are you getting shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters on behalf of the interests of others, serving them in order to glorify Jesus and point them to the one before whom all knees will bow and every tongue will confess. What's your group project? Where are you working, serving for the interests of others in the context of the kingdom of God? And that's the great way to build community, by the way is getting shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters here in the church or maybe out in the community with other ministries. I don't know. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just saying that this is how Christianity works. It's a group project on behalf of the interests of others to bring blessing and to bring glory to Jesus. So where are you plugged in? And where are you serving? And where are you involved? I know you go, group project. Oh, I hate group projects. <laughs> Right? Remember high school, the group project where you had to do all the work because everybody else slacked off? Or college, group project, same thing. Maybe you're in high school. Maybe you're in college and you're like, I hate this. 
Well, it's because nobody wants to be there. We're here in the church. There's no greater privilege being in the kingdom of God and getting to serve one another on behalf of the one who served us. So let me wrap up by this other bit of cheer, you know, where Paul is saying, look, in verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send Timothy just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Like, he's wondering, he imagines he's going to be released from prison. Maybe not, though. He might die a martyr right now, but he sort of has this sense from the Spirit that I, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He wants to be with them. He longs for their company, for their presence. He wants to have fellowship, real fellowship with the Philippians. And, and their presence with him matters. His presence with them matters. He doesn't want to be separated from those who share Christ with them because he misses fellowship with his brothers and sisters. Um, listen to another place. This is now Paul's final imprisonment. He writes 2 Timothy from like literally maybe days before, probably weeks before his martyrdom. And he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. And the tone of 2 Timothy sounds a lot different than Philippians. Philippians, Paul's got joy. 2 Timothy, Paul's, Paul's lonely. He feels deserted. He's going, Luke alone is with me. Do your best to come to me. I miss you. Reminds me kind of like when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, in prison. He was part of a, an effort to basically get rid of the Nazi leadership, in particular uh, uh, a plot to assassinate Hitler, and that was discovered. And he was arrested. And of course, he went to the concentration camps. One of them was Buchenwald. Uh, Michael and Sarah and I got to go to Germany three or four years ago. I can't remember. Uh, and so one of the places that we toured was, uh, was Erfurt. And right outside of Erfurt is, is the Buchenwald labor camp. It's not, a it's not a death camp, but it's a labor camp, concentration camp. On the gates of it, it says, um, Scott Seaton told me what it translated, but something like, uh, work will set you free or whatever as you go through those gates. And what a lie. But Bonhoeffer was transferred there in February 1945, and he spent two months at Buchenwald before he was transferred to Flossenburg in April. And then on April 8th, he was hanged for treason against the Nazi government. Six years before that, 1939, he was the head of an underground seminary, training pastors in the confessing church, you know, the church that was not bowing the knee to Hitler, but bowing the knee to Jesus. And as he wrote about that seminary, about that community of students who were training to be pastors, many of whom would go on to be martyred themselves, he described their fellowship this way. That the visitor and the visited in loneliness recognize in each other the Christ who is present in the body. And they receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord. And reverence, humility, and joy. Is that how we meet one another? The presence of Jesus before us? And they receive each other's benedictions as the benediction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But 
If there is so much blessing and joy, even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. That's what we get to enjoy. Paul wanted to be with the Philippians. This is why we pray for those who are alone and who need fellowship with other believers, Christians who are in prison or Christians who are under persecution or Christians who live in closed countries. There's no church because it's illegal to believe in Jesus. If if distinctly Christian fellowship is not a joy to you, I'm not saying it has to be a mountaintop all the time, But if it is not something you long for and look forward to, and if this is not joyful to you, then that bears some investigation. Like that bears some follow-up. Is it it possible that you've got the forms of Christianity, but you're missing its substance, that you're missing out on the, the love and the forgiveness and the presence of God with us through the body of Christ, one another? Like, think of it this way. Whoever we enjoy being with the most is an indicator of what we enjoy the most. What's the shared joy? What's the common joy of the people that you hang out with? and that you enjoy hanging out with the most. Maybe it's your friends at work. You guys do a great job, and you love getting the job accomplished, and you, know, you love like, where your company's going and what your work is doing, and that's your primary love. But are you missing out on the love that God has for us and just who we are, not what we do? Or maybe you enjoy most people who share your particular political persuasion, Right? And, and that's the most common ground. And, and, but don't, please don't equate any political party with the kingdom of God. They're not the same. Or what about your favorite team? Who's a Phillies or Eagles fan? Oh, yeah. And that's your greatest joy? Oh, come on, you're missing the real victory. Like whoever you enjoy hanging out the most with is, a, is, is an indicator. It's, that's, a, that's a test. It's a diagnostic tool to tell you what you enjoy the most. God wants our joy to be in fellowship with him. And the real reason that we should want to be with other Christians is because Jesus wants to be with us. If we believe that he is in us through his spirit, if we believe that God's presence is with us through the spirit of Jesus in us, then what does that mean for the spirit of Jesus and one another? And when they're with you, Jesus is with you. And he wants to be with you. Do you really want to be with him? In Hebrews, we're told, let us hold fast this confession. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for giving us a, a pathway to joy, a real solid, substantial, eternal joy. Thank you that that joy comes through being in your presence, and thank you that that joy is offered to us in the presence of one another. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ, and thank you for making us uh, your missionaries and ministers and, uh, and servants to pursue the interests of others just like you pursued our interests. Thank you for forgiving our sins. Thank you for making us new creations. And thank you for making us reminders and, and the reality of Christ with us, Christ among us. In his name we pray.